Hello, Vikram. Hi, Dwayne. Are you ready to talk about overcriminalization? Always. Welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is overcriminalization and was recorded on December 17th, 2019. Joining this installment of Top Priority is Vikrant Reddy, Senior Fellow, Charles Koch Institute. So I was just uh, reviewing YouTube from 2011. Yeah. And CPAC there, I was uh, I was in the Blogger's Lounge doing uh, what I did in the Blogger's Lounge. And there you sit next to me talking about right on crime and overcriminalization. And I'm curious if you wouldn't mind telling us about your your kind of your career in dealing with this, because this has been a, a passion of yours for quite some time, hasn't it? Yeah, I've been interested in this forever. So I'm I'm a lawyer from Texas, and I was practicing law for many years before I joined a public policy think tank in Texas, in Austin, the capital, the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Uh, it's a terrific place. They uh, did and still do a lot of terrific work. And one of the most important things they did was launch a criminal justice reform campaign called Right on Crime. And the really unique innovation was that they were going to target their message to people who are right of center, because for the longest time, people on the left had dominated the issue. So one really key message that Right on Crime was trying to deliver, and that I was over there helping them try to deliver, was to say, look, the government is big and out of control and counterproductive because it's trying to do too many things. We understand that in healthcare and in education and in energy and all these other places. But the same thing applies in the criminal justice system. The sheer number of crimes that the government has created, the federal government and the state government and local ordinances, is just staggering. It's in the hundreds of thousands. People can't possibly be expected to know how many of uh, crimes exist, what kinds of conduct constitute criminal behavior. And for that reason, the government exercises incredible discretion against who they uh, choose to prosecute. The uh, average American, one academic speculates, probably commits about three felonies per day. How could we possibly know what we're doing? The question is simply whether or not the government chooses to prosecute you that day or not. It's just really kind of terrifying. There's a, I think I read something somewhere where, uh, I can't remember who said it even, but you give me the, give me the person and I'll find the crime. Yeah, it's a chilling quote and it comes from the man who, uh, I think his, his name is Beria, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, it's a Russian name. He was the lead henchman under Joseph Stalin. And that was his line, just bring me the man and I'll find the crime. And we are certainly looking at a similar situation here today with overcriminalization. Now, when you look at the, the whole priority initiative of, of, criminal justice reform. That's a that's a big bucket. It is. That is a big bucket. So we're going to kind of slice this up into the the entire process of criminal justice starting with with laws and the fact that uh, there is overcriminalization. So let's start with with the what what are we what are we working towards in this arena of overcriminalization and what is it that that we believe as a as a community? What we're fundamentally working towards is criminalizing fewer things in American law. Uh, we have understandably been concerned about crime for some time, and we started relying on criminal law 
uh, as a solution to everything. It's an appropriate solution to crime. It's an appropriate solution to uh, murder and rape and kidnapping, those kinds of things. But we started expanding the net ever wider and saying, well, there are all sorts of things in society that we don't like, and why don't we just go back to that same hammer uh, and use the criminal law? So here's a kind of a silly example, but it's a real example. There are all sorts of uh, concerns with uh, health and safety surrounding oysters in the state of Texas. You know, I mean, um, you don't want to get sick eating a bad oyster if anybody's ever had that experience. There are all kinds of, uh, you also don't want to overfish, and there are all these kinds of uh, issues that are perfectly reasonable to worry about. But the state of Texas has decided to address all these various oyster issues using the criminal law. You can go to prison for a dozen different oyster-related felonies in the state of Texas. These are the kinds of things that should be handled with civil and administrative sanctions. It's completely absurd that you would use the criminal law on that kind of conduct. But we that's just a tiny example of oysters in just one state. And like I said, there are a dozen different crimes. So uh, just getting into the, what you said there, can you explain to me the, the difference when, when you say the civil law, criminal law, what's the difference there? Yeah, sure. Essentially, what it comes down to is whether or not you're subject to going to prison. Uh, and going to prison is the most, I mean, short of the death penalty, that's the most extraordinary thing a government can do to you. They can take away your liberty, your individual rights that are, if you go back to the founders, if you go back even further to John Locke, that are inherent to you, that are given to you uh, by God or by your very nature, not given to you by government. But the government can take them away. It's different with civil law where the government fines you. Now, I don't like being fined by the government either. I don't think most people do. But it's a far, far cry from incarceration. When the government makes that leap, if you do X, we can incarcerate you. It's an extraordinary move. And what happens if you don't pay those fines? If you don't pay fines, they add up. And at a certain point, you become subject to incarceration. And that's understandable. And I, I think that's, uh, that's reasonable at a certain point. But what we have done more and more in the U.S. is we've looked at incarceration not as a last response, but as a first response. So what are the type of things then that should be, that we believe should be criminalized? I mean, and maybe that's too broad a question. Maybe it's better to ask, what are we criminalizing today that, that we shouldn't be? I guess we've, we've taken a big look at the fact that we want fewer laws to be criminal laws. So what are we saying, you know, should be out there? Yeah, this isn't a perfect uh, uh, mechanism, but it's pretty close. You want to see if there's an identifiable victim. And I would, under, I would underline the word identifiable, uh, and, uh, identifiable and direct, excuse me, because uh, you could make all sorts of esoteric arguments about how well all of these different people are victimized in ways they don't quite appreciate. That's, that's fine. You, we can have those arguments in a philosophy class. But really, when you're making criminal law, you need to see whether or not somebody has explicitly and identifiably been hurt. Was somebody assaulted? Uh, did somebody have their money stolen from them? Was somebody killed or or raped or uh, anything else? With a number of these kinds of crimes, like whatever oyster crimes, or uh, one of my colleagues, Jeremiah Mosteller, is from the state of North Carolina and his state. They will criminalize you if your bingo game lasts for longer than five hours. I mean, I could rattle off literally thousands of uh, goofy little crimes like this. These are not crimes that have identifiable victims. What about all the victims of rogue bingo games? <laughs> there could be tired people out there who are missing numbers 
because the game has gone on so long. And now they're being defrauded from their bingo winnings. It's possible, Dwayne, but I have to admit <laughs> I've never met one. <laughs> Maybe they're being coerced into these long Maybe. bingo games. Uh, there's a rogue uh, bingo gang right. out there that's pulling people in and saying, you're going to sit here for five hours and 45 minutes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about that. When you look at uh, – I, I like looking at these priority initiatives mainly through the lens of the vision and then getting into the, the mutually reinforcing principles. The goal of the podcast, of course, is to help people better understand what we're doing and also why we're doing it. So when we look at our network vision, we exist to break barriers. Help us understand overcriminalization through the, that lens. Well, I think that's a, a great way of putting it. You know, we're trying to help people break barriers. And what these criminal laws on ordinary conduct are, are just an endless series of barriers. All kinds of things, uh, very frequently we're talking about ordinary economic activity, that have been criminalized. And so it's really difficult for you to be an entrepreneur, to strike out on your own, uh, you know, to build a life for yourself. A lot of times also, there are all kinds of... Uh, uh, ordinary day-to-day -day family activities that get criminalized. I mean, there are people who, uh, you know, have been pulled into the criminal justice system because they were operating a daycare without a license. This is a, a case that comes to my mind out of Michigan. Now, people may say instinctively, well, that actually, that sounds pretty bad. You shouldn't be operating a daycare without a license. But what was happening in this case that I'm thinking about is that there were kids waiting at a bus stop that was near a woman's house in the neighborhood, the school bus, and it was awfully cold outside, so she said to the children in the neighborhood, you can come in and you can just wait by the window in my home till the bus comes by. It'll come by in two, three, four minutes, whatever. Yeah, but when she had all those kids in her home waiting by the window looking for the school bus, she was, quote, operating a daycare center. She was subject to criminal law. Again, we just turn all of these tiny incidents of ordinary behavior, uh, ways that Again, it's not just economic activity. This is just a woman trying to be a good neighbor. You know, we should be encouraging and fostering these kinds of local bonds and community ties, but the criminal law stands in the way of them uh, being cultivated. How does this overcriminalization lead to, you know, we think about the entire process. So you've got overcriminalization, but then you've got, you know, policing and then the courts and then the prison system and then afterwards. This is just. I think this is being so key because if we can work on this, then a lot of the other problems will be so much easier to handle. I think it's a great question. I'll, I'll give you um, a tragic example that I like to give. I've given a lot of silly examples so far, but here's a really serious one. When you have this many crimes, you just can't possibly enforce all of them. I mean, it's mathematically unrealistic. So what you do is you put a lot of discretion in the hands of law enforcement and the people who are uh, people who find themselves uh, in situations with law enforcement recognize that discretion is being used, and they'll often ask the question reasonably, "Well, why am I being prosecuted for this rather than somebody else?" A lot of times, there's no rhyme or reason, um, other than you know what the officer had for breakfast that morning, whether or not he's in a good mood or a bad mood. So, here's a tragic example of where something like this plays out: the state of New York. Uh, criminalize the selling of loose cigarettes, individual cigarettes, rather than selling them by the pack. There was a man, everybody knows this story, named Eric Garner, who is uh, standing on a street corner in Staten Island selling loose cigarettes. This is technically a crime. It is in New York. 
uh, I don't know how often people are enforced, uh, excuse me, I don't know how often the crime is enforced by law enforcement, but on this particular day a few years ago, law enforcement decided to enforce it against Eric Garner. Some percentage of interactions between civilians and police officers are going to turn violent. That's inevitable. So you want to reduce the number of uh, altercations in the first place. Because if you don't, some of these violent situations are not only going to be violent, they're going to be deadly. That's what happened with Eric Garner. Uh, you know, he resisted being arrested. The police officers put him in a chokehold. He died from that chokehold. He died as a direct result of overcriminalization. If this goofy law hadn't existed in New York, he wouldn't have had any kind of a situation with the police officers that day, and he'd be alive today. When you look at that, that particular example, uh, I think about what you said earlier. Is who's the identifiable victim here? Who exactly is being victimized by Eric Garner selling loose cigarettes on the street? The, the victim is only the state. Exactly. Because they're not collecting their, their taxes. And that's what this was all about, isn't right. it? Right. I'll make an additional point, an additional tragic point about Eric Garner. Uh, understandably, law enforcement can sometimes be centralized in uh, neighborhoods where there's a bit more crime or a bit more uh, you know, concerns about poverty, things like that. Uh, and so that means that the law enforcement resources are not located in affluent suburbs, but they tend to be centralized in urban inner city areas, often with large African-American populations. So it's those places where the police officers are exercising their willy-nilly discretion. And understandably, it's a lot of times African-Americans in these neighborhoods who are wondering, why is the discretion being exercised against me today, but not last Tuesday? Or why is it exercised against me right now, not uh, my friend who lives down the street? Like, I just can't seem to understand what the uh, rhyme or reason is here. And so they feel uh, harassed. And I think that's a component of some of the racial problems that we have in the country. Well, that leads us right into the first mutually reinforcing principle, equal rights. And when you talk about overcriminalization and you look at it through the lens of, of equal rights, why are we promoting overcriminalization through when you speak of it, when when I can, when I'm out there and someone says, "Why are you doing this?" How would I talk about that through the lens of equal rights? I guess what you would say is that when you have this many criminal laws, you empower discretion, and when you empower discretion, you start to lose the equal application of the law because a lot of things become dependent on the person exercising the discretion. Like we said what kind of a mood they're in that day or whether or not they have any particular animus towards uh, the quote-unquote suspect. And, and so the sort of really basic idea of equality that's central to our vision here starts to disappear. I was uh, watching my Facebook feed the other day, and the state patrol in my, in my state was celebrating this, this drug bust on, on I-70, and they said, this this vehicle crossed the center line and was pulled over. And I thought, I've driven on that section of I-70. Crossing the center line is the least criminal thing I've seen on that state. And it goes right to to what you're saying. You know, th th we we have all these laws that, that almost, almost make it easy to pull someone over or to, to stop someone or to, you know, at, at times harass someone. And that, that leads to... Uh, unequal 
I don't know, application of the law, maybe? Is that is that something you'd say? Oh, I think that's absolutely true. There's an example. I got this actually from Justice Neil Gorsuch, and uh, I wish I could tell the story as well as he could. But there was a emperor, I want to say a Roman emperor, who would uh, who would place the laws on very, very high towers or pillars where people couldn't read them. And uh, they had no concept of what the law actually was. And all that did was empower the people in law enforcement to get to, again, harass the ordinary citizens on a day-to-day basis um, in a way that made the citizens feel like they were just making the law up as they went along. Again, that's the kind of thing that we want to try and avoid in the United States, but that I fear we keep inching more and more towards. Because if you go into any uh, ordinary legislature and you just start counting how many criminal laws get passed year after year after year, it's, it, I mean, easily over a dozen at the federal level, it's uh, easily over you know, 20, 30. And that just happens year after year after year. We're at a point now where we can't even count the number of federal criminal laws. They, they asked the Congressional Research Service to do a count, and they began doing this. They got to about 3,000, 4,000, and then they just stopped, and they said, look, this is not a productive use of our resources. Some people estimate that since that count ended, it's now grown uh, to 5,000 or even close to 6,000. That's a figure that comes from the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. If you don't know what the law is, it's uh, almost impossible to obey it. When we talk about overcriminalization, we, we I can think about it at like the federal level, the state level, the city level. Where where are we mainly focusing? Is is there is there one specific place that we're we really want to impact, or is it just wherever we see it? For example, I think about I think about the you know on the city level, a lot of those things are going to be civil. Yeah. Are we are we dealing with that in any way, or is this strictly in in criminal? I think in our philanthropic community. Uh, we spend a lot of time focused on state-level reform, mm-hmm. uh, and I think for good reason. That's uh, you know sort of where our resources are directed. But I also think that it's important to look at the federal system. Things start to get really, really detailed when you get into the uh, the local level. That may be the final frontier, but I think that's I think that we've prioritized state-level reform. I, I, the reason I ask is I'm thinking of this city in. Uh, in in Missouri, uh, it's outside of Ferguson. I I think it may have been Delwood. I may be mistaken, but I remember uh, an Institute for Justice video where they were talking about this city. They would find people for barbecuing in their front yard. They would find people for having mismatched blinds in their house. Yeah. And I was wondering if if that was the type of thing that was covered in this priority initiative, or if that was a different subject altogether. Yeah, you know, I think we should strategically engage where we can in places like that. And in fact, um, one great example comes out of Utah, where there's an entity that I always call uh, Libertas, but I think they call themselves Libertas. In any event, the organization um, has got a local ordinance project where they're looking at precisely this kind of thing, where people who are just you know, living their lives and uh, managing their homes the way they want are finding themselves fined uh, and eventually even subject to criminal penalty because they're not obeying these uh, goofy local ordinances. Would you qualify that as as uh, policing p- for profit? Have you? I, I sh- assume you've heard that phrase before. I have heard that phrase, and actually, that's another really good point that you bring up. You know, uh, you hear about uh, the way that 
municipalities will basically finance themselves by relying on these kinds of uh, ordinary ticky-tacky fines and fees. And in fact, to use yet another tragic example, um, the city of Ferguson, uh, Ferguson, Missouri, was particularly bad on this score. I want to say something like 15% of all of the uh, the city's uh, financing came from just ordinary fines and fees. And it seems like there was a real incentive there for law enforcement to just find small day-to-day things that people are doing and uh, shake them down. Again, this is the kind of thing where you can understand why trust in law enforcement would erode. Uh, you know, there's a prominent... Uh, anti-tax activist in, in the United States named Grover Norquist. And Grover likes to say that nobody ever trusts the tax collectors. This is literally a line that comes out of the Old Testament or New Testament, somewhere in the Bible. And uh, it's understandable. Taxes at a certain level are necessary, but nobody likes them and nobody likes the person who collects them. So whoever it is that is shaking you down for money is not a person that you're going to feel as somebody that you can trust, go to if you see some kind of a problem in the neighborhood or in the community. It's going to be somebody who in your eyes is always suspicious. That's what the city of Ferguson and many other cities and states in the U.S. have done to their law enforcement officers. And a lot of times when when these things happen, when we we see someone being fined or we see someone having the, the law applied to them, there are times when they they simply can't afford whatever fines they're getting or whatever whatever happens afterwards. And then there are repercussions that come along with that. You know, you can't afford the fine. So they, maybe they confiscate your car or, or, and then you lose your job and it just rolls and rolls and rolls. Oh, you're absolutely right to bring that up. I uh, can't even count the number of ridiculous stories I could tell on this score. Here's one that always stands out to me. There is a woman in Louisiana who had accumulated some uh, traffic fines. I think they were parking tickets and uh, the amount of the fines had, had gotten quite large. I think it was around $2,000, something like that. She wanted to pay them off. And so she started sending partial payments into uh, the local government to handle the fines. The checks came back to her with a note that partial payments were not accepted. You had to pay in full. And so these payments would not be accepted. Oh, and by the way, interest is now accumulating. This happened repeatedly. And uh, the amount of her fine just began to escalate ever larger and ever larger. At a certain point, a citation went out for her arrest because she, quote unquote, wasn't paying the fine. Louisiana had no system on which to put her on a payment plan. This was somebody who had messed up, okay? We We should have parking laws. I don't think that's so terribly unreasonable. But when you've got somebody who has broken those laws and who's trying to do the right thing, we need to have some... Uh, mechanism in our government to help that person. When it comes to mutual benefit, the next of the uh, mutually reinforcing principles, how do we look at overcriminalization through the lens of mutual benefit? Well, I think you want to empower people to help one another. You want to empower people to trade and engage in commerce with each other. You want to empower people to to go back to that example about uh, the woman who was, quote, operating a daycare from her home. You want to have people uh, do favors for their neighbors. When you have a situation where virtually any tiny little thing that you could do is subject to a criminal penalty, uh, it's very difficult to do those kinds of things. If it is a crime to release a balloon into the air, if it is a crime 
to uh, catch the uh, wrong kind of fish in a particular area. There's a crime for releasing balloons into the air? This happened in Florida. There was a guy who was proposing to his girlfriend and is part of uh, the proposal. You know, people like to do big extravagant proposals. He released some balloons up into the air. And this was a crime. And this guy was cited for this. And all these things are kind of rooted in something that is somewhat understandable. I mean, you probably don't want plastic and these kinds of things in, in Florida's beautiful oceans. I understand that. But whether or not you should be subject to criminal penalty uh, and subject to potential incarceration is another issue altogether. You brought up a, a great point and one we've, we've talked about when we've done training on the vision and specifically uh, the key institutions. And one thing that I've ar argued over the years is that every time we pass a city ordinance or, or a silly state law, uh, we are expanding the role of government and almost immediately contracting the role of community. Because when, when I look at some of the city ordinances that I see across the country, what, what I envision is, is a neighbor who was upset with their neighbor. And so rather than talk to their neighbor, they went to city hall and they talked to city hall and they said, we need to pass an ordinance on this. And every time that happens, we see neighbors talking to one another less. And we have people all over the country who are just clamoring for stronger communities right. while at the same time turning to government to solve all, all their problems. And when I think of mutual benefit, there there's so much that comes along with a strong community that knows one another that is taken away by, uh, by over-criminalization or, uh, you know, a, a a busybody government that wants to tell you how to run everything from what what blinds you should have in your in your house. The idea of mutual benefit comes from the fact that we do have neighbors who say, "Look, uh, their their kids are cold out on the corner. We should do something about that." But now says those kids will just have to be cold because I'm not suffering another fine because I wanted to be helpful. There there are a lot of benefits there too. And, I think you've put that so well. I'm going to steal it from you in the future, Dwayne. I mean, it's just uh, really terrific. So many people are con uh, concerned about the way that community is eroding in the United States these days. That's not a left-right thing. Everybody recognizes that this is a problem. But people have a hard time understanding what the root of the problem is. And there are many, many uh, roots to that problem. But but one is the way that we're overusing the criminal law and and the way that we are forcing government into spaces that historically had been spaces for people to just have interactions with one another. You're absolutely right. Whenever it is your first instinct to go to the government, to go to the criminal enforcement mechanism of government, because there's something you don't like about your neighbor's bushes uh, or about their lawn, there's something about um, human interaction and mutual benefit that has been lost. The I would love to just at one point I was I was toying with the idea of running for city council and after the last time I was on a city council that will destroy any uh any kind of initiative you want to take to run for a city council again but uh one thing that I always found fun and it was entertaining for me would someone would come and say my neighbor's doing this and you need to pass an ordinance to do that and right. I'd say wow oh, that's interesting let's go talk to them 
And they'd look at me, what? Yeah, let's just go talk, find out what's going on. Yeah. Before we do anything that's going to use force, let's go talk to your neighbor. Right. And then they looked at me like I had two heads. Like, no, that's not how this works. I'm like, well, I'm I'm more apt to actually lean on community before I am force. So let's go talk to them. And that usually put an end to the uh, discussion. So maybe we just need, maybe we just need more people in politics who are willing to, to take that road rather than than yeah, let's let's use force again. That's not a maybe. That's a definitely. When you look at that, we we can keep moving on. When you look at openness, the idea of of uh, having a more open society, how does overcriminalization fit into that? Well, again, when you've got these uh, barriers in your way that are limiting your ability to uh, do any number of things, whether or not that is uh, local and community and family type things we've talked about, whether or not it's economic behavior. Uh, we've talked a little bit about how that's, you know, eroded and reduced uh, community bonds. Eroding and reducing community bonds is almost another way of saying eroding and reducing openness. It's a way of uh, leading to people closing themselves off so that they're not interacting with one another, but they're just living in a very insular way within their own home and their own mind. And the only way they're, they're finding to interact with the people around them is to go through the government, and that's that's not the, that's not a good road to, to go down. That's I don't not, think that's a not a society. society. Yeah, that's no. not a society that we want. And critically, for the way we think about these issues, it's not a free society. A free society really relies on people uh, engaging in individual transactions and conversations with one another, and not using the government as a go-between. I wonder how many people are are put off from taking an action, whether it's starting a business or or really doing anything, uh, because of a fear for what they don't know. I would think a lot of people, even even little children. I mean, there are these uh, ridiculous stories everybody has heard about kids who get in trouble because they're operating lemonade stands without licenses, and all of these health and safety regulations have kicked in. And uh, it's it's been a little while since I've seen an operating lemonade stand. I think I've seen about two in the last five years or so. They were in Georgetown uh, in Washington, D.C. This is a neighborhood where the law enforcement isn't actually particularly aggressive. Um, I don't know. It's, it's tough to prove that uh, there are fewer lemonade stands out there because parents are saying, eh, I don't know if you want to do that. We get in trouble. Maybe that's happening. Maybe there are other things happening. Maybe it's a combination of factors but I, I think it's, um, it's reasonable to speculate that all kinds of economic activity, whether it's a little kid opening a lemonade stand or whether or not it's somebody uh, you know, trying to open uh, an important new business, they're you know, trying to sell something to you, people in their community that's being limited. You can see the, uh, the results of, of this closing off of societies in, in the, uh, the migration in, inside the United States, how you have some states that are continually losing population and some that are continually gaining. Uh, and you went, you went back to, uh, you mentioned Texas at the beginning. Texas is, is consistently growing in population. Some of it might have to do with their tax structure, but a lot, you know, I, w- I would think that a lot of it just has to do with, with a society that is open to having more people come there and start businesses and not having these barriers put in their way that prohibits that. I think that's true. I also think there are, uh, this is tough to measure, but there are indicators out there that try to measure social capital in places. And what they're trying to capture is the sense of community that places have. 
And Texas generally does relatively well in, in those indicators. I think I've seen Wisconsin do the very best in the uh, last one that I saw. But there are states that are better at those kinds of things. And I suspect that these are, these are also states where overcriminalization is slightly less of a problem, where these kinds of um, uh, tendencies to rely on the criminal law for every single problem uh, are less severe than they are in other places. That's not to say these problems don't exist in Texas or Wisconsin or Utah. These are all states that we've talked about a little bit in our conversation today. They have overcriminalization problems too. But, um, you know, a state where I could imagine that it's really, really bad is California, where I visit California frequently because I have family there. I can't tell you the number of just little signs that I see on every single building about the kinds of behavior that you're not permitted to engage in in this particular area, uh, in this particular building, in this particular space. It's just endless. I can't read all of the language that's just all around me. And California is notably a state that has been losing population for a little while. While we're talking about Texas, this is kind of an aside. I was watching the uh, the interview we did back at uh, 2011, and you mentioned uh, that you were working towards the Texas model at that point. And Texas, when you think about Texas, you usually think about, I don't know, they have this reputation of the Texas Rangers really being hard on crime, and you don't want to mess around in Texas. because, And yet Texas is leading the way on criminal justice reform. Uh, could you Could you tell me a little bit about what the Texas model is and the results that they've seen in there, because a lot of a lot of times when we talk about criminal justice reform, there is that accusation of why are you soft on crime? I've had to deal with that myself from people who, you know, are they they like to say that they're libertarians and yet I'm being soft on crime. And yeah. I thought I don't know if you know what that means. Um, so let's talk about if you don't mind the Texas model, uh, what they've done and what the results of that have been. Sure. So one thing that we've mentioned a couple of times in our conversation today is this tendency to think of incarceration as a first resort rather than a last resort. This is something that Texas identified as a real problem around 2007 or so and decided to do something about. They, uh, they just uh, had an overwhelmingly swelling um, influx of migrants, as we've talked about. So many people from other states are moving into Texas, and the state legislature was happy about the fact that a lot of people are coming to Texas and wanted to live here. But they were also concerned about the idea that well, if you have more people, you'll have more crime, you'll need to open up more prison space, more prison beds. And in fact, they got an estimate that about 17,000 new prison beds were going to be required over the next 10 years. But they went back to the uh, entity that gave them the estimate, the state's legislative budget board, and they said, gosh, is there any way that we could do this uh, that we could handle the public safety uh, potential problems without opening up 17,000 new prison beds because that's going to cost $2 billion. We don't want to go to taxpayers or you know dig into the state surplus to pay for something like that. So what they were told by the Legislative Budget Board and what they were told, and this is critical by judges, is that there are all kinds of non-incarceration solutions, things like drug courts and good probation programs that we could rely on but we don't have space for those things. Somebody comes into a court and the judge realizes this person is not going to benefit from incarceration. Public safety in Texas is not going to benefit from incarceration, but I have nowhere else to put them. I'll just put them in prison. And you know, you can even stock multiple people in prison cells and things get really dangerous and overcrowded, but that's all they have. So the state legislature said, well, here's what we'll do. Instead of thinking of incarceration as a first resort, it'll be a last resort. 
The first resort will be these probation programs you're talking about. And what we will do is we will spend a fraction of that $2 billion. Instead, we'll spend something like $300 million, And we will put that money into these kinds of programs and see whether or not this theory actually plays out, that this is a better way to handle public safety issues than incarceration. Well, more than 10 years have gone by, and it's no longer a theory. Texas has shut down eight prisons, and it's got the lowest crime rate it's had since 1967. Now, I think that that is key. I mean, you could <coughs> shut down all the, all the prisons, but what is – you could say that that was almost a natural result of not criminalizing. Of course, you'd have fewer people in prison if you were sending fewer people to prison. But the point being that there has actually been a drop in the crime rate. I think that is, that is the key statistic to describe the success of this experiment. And that's the type of thing that we're hoping to see uh, with this movement. Texas has had uh, eight prisons shut down in the last 10 years. It's got the lowest crime rate it's had since 1967. Property crime is down 43%. Violent crime, this is the thing we're really concerned about, is down 20%. So uh, it's all well and good, as you said, Dwayne, to just sort of you know shut down the prisons and say, oh, well, that's a good thing, but it, that doesn't work if crime goes up. That hasn't happened either. This decision that Texas has made to make incarceration more of a last resort rather than a first resort has yielded actual public safety benefits. Let's let's move right into the uh, the last of all our mutually reinforcing principles, uh, self-actualization. When you're talking about uh, over-criminalization through the lens of self-actualization, uh, uh, what are your thoughts there? Well, you know, there's uh, if you spend too much time on social media, as I do, there's this meme about living your best life. Mm -hmm. I think that's what uh, self-actualization means, is being able to live your best life. With over-criminalization, you've got so many people who are worried that every single one of their day-to-day -day activities uh, could be some kind of a crime. They're prevented from doing just about anything and uh, therefore prevented from living their best life. You know, I'll, I'll give you a serious example of something that is coming before the U.S. Supreme Court right now. There's a case called Walker versus United States. Without getting into all the details, the case is about this guy, Mr. Walker, who had uh, previously gotten in trouble but had put his life back together, and he was managing a boarding house for people. In addition to this, he was uh, taking care of an elderly mother, of a disabled son, taking care of his wife, he's earning money, he's, you know, he was keeping his nose clean. Somebody had stayed in the boarding house and left behind some bullets. And he found the bullets when he was cleaning the place up, and, and he kept them. He just thought they were cool or interesting, or maybe he was keeping them for safekeeping. He doesn't even own a firearm. But he picked these bullets up and he kept them. Because he had gotten into trouble previously, there was a, a restriction on his ability to own ammunition. Again, it's not even owning a firearm. It's owning the, the bullets. And it subjected him to a 15-year mandatory minimum sentence in prison. And uh, the Supreme Court is reviewing this case right now. It's a really interesting over-criminalization case. I think a lot of questions are going to be asked, setting aside some of the technical legal questions in that case, just about the, the broader fairness of that kind of conduct with this kind of a person subjecting you to 15 years in prison. That's an enormous chunk of a human being's life for what was at the, uh, at the end of the day a really kind of a pretty minor conduct. This is what we're talking about when we're talking about self-actualization being limited. The fact that 
your ability to just run and manage a boarding house and have a decent job and take care of your family and really put your life back together after a troubled childhood has been restricted. Your entire reentry process uh, has been inhibited because of too much criminal law and too much government. This is the point of the podcast where I start to wonder uh, what I don't know. I don't know. And when you think about the, the past 40 minutes of what we talked about, is there anything that, that people should know about this topic that I didn't ask about? I think probably something that people ought to know is that you also have a real problem with uh, what lawyers call mens rea. This is this Latin term for uh, state of mind. So all that really means is that uh, criminal conduct means that you've, you've done the bad physical act, but that you've also had the bad state of mind. So it wasn't just an accident. Like you really intended to do something wrong. A lot of criminal laws these days just get rid of the mens rea component in the statute altogether. This is a huge problem at, the, at both the state and federal level. And it goes back to this idea we talked about where people can't possibly know that they've become criminals. They've become, in a sense, accidental criminals. And if you're an accidental criminal and the law is being enforced against, against you just through day-to-day uh, -day discretion of law enforcement officers, you've got a, a really dysfunctional criminal justice system. How often does something like that um, happen? Is that is that becoming more common? Is that something that, that we're seeing a lot of? Or has this been kind of constant? Uh, you're seeing definitely quite a bit more of, uh, of the problem of the mens rea component not even being included in the statute. There's actual data, which I wish I could quote to you off the top of my head, but I would encourage listeners to go and find a report uh, called Without Intent. This was co-authored by... Uh, a left-right kind of coalition, the National Association for Criminal Defense Lawyers on the left and the Heritage Foundation on the right. And they actually count up uh, at the federal level uh, the, the number of laws that get drafted without any mens rea uh, protection. And they actually calculate year after year after year how more and more laws like this are being drafted. Uh, it's certainly a huge problem. And if you've got laws like this on the books, all you've done is empower law enforcement to start aggressively enforcing them. Thank you for listening to this installment of Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. If you have any questions regarding today's top priority, please email them to me at toppriority at afphq.org. We'd love to answer them in an episode of Frequently Asked, a short podcast where we answer the most frequently asked questions regarding our priority initiatives. And if there's an aspect of today's priority that you want us to discuss further, let us know that too. Until next time, I'm Dwayne Lester, and thanks again for listening.